Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. At this point in the season, now that we've turned over the new calendar year, it appears that the top six seeds in each conference are pretty set playoff-wise, but there's a lot of interesting conversation going on around the teams that are sort of around that playoff bubble in the 7 to 10 range. So for the next couple podcasts, we're going to cover the Western and Eastern Conference playoff bubbles starting with the Eastern Conference. So today I'm here with Kevin Nye. And Kevin, how are you doing? I am doing all right, Nick. I got eight tabs open to basketballreference.com pages, so I think I'm ready. I have nine open right now, so clearly that's all that matters. I've got you beat on that front, so podcast is already off to a great start for me. (laughs) Ouch. All right, let's get started by talking about the current seventh seed, the Brooklyn Nets. All standings that I and Kevin provide on this podcast will be as of the end of Friday night's games. So as of the end of Friday night's games, the Brooklyn Nets are 16 and 17. They've lost four straight, but they are expected to get Karis Levert back starting tonight. And... The big story for the Nets, other than the Karis LeVert injury, has been the Kyrie Irving injury, but Spencer Dinwiddie has gone from one of the best sixth men in the league to someone who I think might be on the bubble for all-star consideration. What are your thoughts on that? I think he's got to be on the bubble, right? I mean, there's a few concerns, I guess. He's shooting about 30% from three, which isn't great, but... um, He's carried them for the whole time that Irving has been out. And while that's been, and of course they've actually lost four in a row. So maybe that's, maybe that's giving him a little too much credit, but uh, I mean, he is the engine that's making them go. And it seems like the other players play better when, when Dinwiddie is in there, you know, I don't know if the stats would bear it out that he does more with the ball than Irving or if he passes more or, or what he does. But as a fantasy basketball player who owns Joe Harris, I can tell you that Joe Harris is a lot better when, when Spencer Dinwiddie is the point guard, but I I think he's real, real close um, as an Eastern conference backcourt player. I'd have to sit back and think about it again to see where I'd really rank him, but it would depend on things like if Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons end up as backcourt or frontcourt, I think that would make a lot of difference for him. Do you have him? Uh, do you have Spencer making the cut? I think that it entirely depends on when Kyrie Irving comes back. And the Nets have said almost literally nothing about Kyrie's <laughs> right. health status. So I think it's really hard to tell. But just for some sort of statistical clarifications at this point, Spencer's just under 23 points a game, little over six assists per game against under three turnovers per game. I think, honestly, the big difference between him and Kyrie is that Kyrie is kind of a score first and second point guard, (laughs) whereas Spencer, I think, he's not exactly your typical pass first point guard either, but he certainly looks to move the ball around a lot more than Kyrie does. And obviously, he doesn't have the same kind of scoring ceiling as Kyrie, but I think he definitely does help the offense sort of move along more. And it'll be interesting to see how that works out when Kyrie does return, because at the beginning of the season, Spencer was ice cold. He had a terrible first 10 games of the year. And granted, 
that's pretty much the entirety of the time that Kyrie was actually playing for them. But because we've seen so little of the two of them playing together, it's hard for me to parse whether that's just Spencer having a really cold first 10 games or whether he actually doesn't really work all that well with Kyrie on the floor. Right. Um, I have a theory that it's that he doesn't work that well with Kyrie on the floor because it's starting to seem like there are very few players in the NBA who work well with Kyrie on the floor. Uh, Now, I say this as a Cleveland native who has a bunch of Cavs championship gear. um, So, of course, he has a special place in my heart. But, you know, the we're looking at like what, three years of, three consecutive years of guys just not really wanting to play with him except for Kevin Durant, who, you know, isn't going to play with him until at least next fall, probably. So it's uh, it's at least a concern, right? And And the Nets were so much fun last year with this, like, sort of ragtag group and Spencer Dinwiddie just blowing past people. Um, and then they, I mean, obviously this was all the story when they signed Irving and, and Durant over summer, but with Kyrie out, they turned back into the team that they were. And that's just kind of more fun. This is going to sound very strange to start. So bear with me here, but I feel like Kyrie and Paul George are actually really, really similar in that if they're your second best player, you're going to be one of the best teams in the NBA. If they're your best player and your primary option, maybe things won't be going so well. And I think Paul George fits in better as a primary option just because he's a really great defensive player. And let's just say that defense is not Kyrie Irving's strong suit. But I think that what we've seen from Kyrie over the last three years, I don't want to make any sort of judgment call until we've seen what he looks like with Kevin Durant, because I think it's very possible that KD comes back next year and Kyrie slots into a role that makes a lot more sense for him, which is more of a scoring guard rather than the primary option. And I think that's the role that he's best suited for. So we'll see if that sort of works out. But I think he's just ever so slightly underqualified to be the lead guy on a top tier playoff team. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid assessment. Um, Like you said, uh, Paul George has a, a little bit more defensive prowess, I think. I mean, just just like a hair. Just a touch, yeah. I mean, Kyrie was right behind him in Defensive Player of the Year voting last year. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, the flip side is that I will forever have the image of when Paul George was the best player on the Pacers a few years ago. Um, I think it was 2016. So obviously he's, he's become a better player uh, since then. But... Uh, they were playing the Cavs in the playoffs and Paul George didn't get the last shot. And he very publicly in the press conference was like, I need to take that shot. That's gotta be me. And this was while those Gatorade commercials were running where they just kept showing Paul George, like slow motion, taking game winning shots. And then the next game he gets a game winning shot and didn't even touch the rim. And it's just, it's one of my favorite like snippets in NBA history. It was just, it was so perfect. Poor guy. I think that the time that the first of those Gatorade commercials aired, Paul George was 0 of 13 in buzzer beating <laughs> shots in his career. <laughs> oh boy. So yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I think the, the Kyrie saga is just, it's a saga wherever he goes and whatever he does. And the nets are maybe, they're maybe less interesting when he's injured, but they're more fun when he's out. Well, if we're talking about fun, then we do have to mention someone who I touched on briefly earlier. Karis LeVert is expected to make his 
return tonight. And when the Nets picked him 20th overall a few years ago, pretty much the only reason that he dropped was because of injury concerns. He was seen as a lottery pick after his sophomore year at Michigan, then broke his foot twice (laughs) and has sort of been a health struggle ever since then. But we saw at the beginning of last season and during the playoffs last season as well that he has an incredible amount of skill and it's really just a matter of whether or not he can stay on the court. And I think this also feeds back into something else, which is the fact that Kenny Atkinson has kept this team near 500 without, maybe you would say that, I think you can clearly say that Spencer's their second best player, but certainly without their best second best and third best players, you know, sitting on the sideline with Katie, Karis LeVert and Kyrie Irving out. It does say a lot about the coaching job that Kenny has done, but going back to Karis, I mean, he's someone that I think can take a lot of the primary responsibilities out of Spencer's hands. And he's done a great job of that, but Karis is someone who can get a bucket in a whole bunch of unorthodox ways. Right. And that I think will be really important for a team that basically their offense this season without Kyrie has been Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris coming off curls, mm-hmm. Torian Prince starting really hot from deep and falling off an absolute cliff. But really that's where the offense has been and any help they can get from Karis will be huge as they try and stay within the playoff picture. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think. Um... I think a lot of the ways you described Karis just then, like he can get a bucket from a lot of unorthodox ways is um, I think of Dinwiddie as being at least somewhat similar um, and theoretically having each other out there instead of being, being alone uh, should open things up a lot for each of them. So uh, I'm eager to see it. Let's move on to the current eighth seed in the Eastern Conference, the Orlando Magic, currently 16 and 19 after having won their game against Miami last night. And really the news with this team is that Jonathan Isaac, who maybe has been their best player this year, he's certainly been one of the best defensive players in basketball, and now he's expected to be out until at least March. So the question there is, do you think Orlando can stick around in the eighth seed, even though they've lost one of, if not their actual best player. Sure. So I'm going to say something that I don't know if anyone, including basketball people has ever said. So get ready. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about the Orlando magic. Um, (laughs) So with Isaac, um, that it just sucks. There's no two ways around it. That's a bummer. Um, I think they can hang in there because of the teams that we're talking about. I mean, Brooklyn, I think, is is a half a step ahead of them, but the East has been a laughingstock since, like, 1999. So nobody's out of it except for Atlanta. Um, so from that point of view, I feel like they can certainly um, they can certainly hang around whether or not they'll actually stay in. Uh, in that eighth seed, I kind of think they will, um, but you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on it. Um, the thing that that really sticks with me on the the Isaac thing is like earlier in the season, or even over summer, you know, there's like, should they trade Aaron Gordon? You know, is it time to move off of Aaron Gordon because Jonathan Isaac just seems like he's probably a better player than Aaron Gordon? And what can you get for Gordon and these sorts of things? And I had even suggested a Gordon for Kevin Love trade to try to 
inject some offense into the magic um, and get me away from Kevin Love's contract. Um, but now what do you do? Um, you got to at least try for the next month going into the trade deadline. And if it looks like they're holding on to the eighth seat, then you just ride it out, I guess. But if they, if they struggle, do you start really aggressively shopping Gordon? What do you do? Um, it, it just feels like they're, it, it just sucks that, that Jonathan Isaac was the one who got injured. I mean, it sucks when anyone gets injured, but um, that just didn't need to happen. And it bums me out. I've been admittedly really high on Aaron Gordon, maybe too high on Aaron Gordon for a long time. And I thought that he just desperately needed to get out of Orlando because they're trying to play him at small forward for a lot of the early portion of his career. And that's just not the kind of player he is. This, I think, is really the make-or-break moment for Aaron Gordon. If he can step in with Isaac injured, and he's super inconsistent on defense, but when he hits his peak levels on defense, he's not as good as Isaac, but he's a really, really solid defender who can switch across pretty much any position. And I think that if Aaron Gordon can sort of break out and blow up with Isaac out, then... I will feel a little bit validated about how high I've been on him. Sure. But, you know, maybe if he can't break out without that sort of logjam in front of him a little bit clearer, maybe it's time for me to sort of give up on my hopes for his ceiling. Maybe, but I mean, he's not even 25. Uh, It feels like he's been around for, I don't know, a decade, but he just hasn't, you know, he had a really good, what was it, his second season, maybe his third season, that everyone's just like, oh man, this guy's incredible. You know, the dunk contest helped, of course, but like, it just felt like, oh, he's he's really got something here. Um, and it, whether it's scheme or teammates or what, you know, they've never really been sure if they should hand him the keys to the offense or if they should, you know, try to build around Vucevic or what exactly they should do. And he's kind of suffered the consequences of that. I agree with you enough about his potential that I was willing to trade Kevin Love for him um, and give Aaron Gordon the keys to the Cavs offense with a couple of young backcourt players. Um, But that that doesn't really mean anything, does it? Not particularly, no. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean... That's kind of where I stand on it. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be a lot on his shoulders. Um, but the other guy whose shoulders, some of that's going to fall on, some of the, the onus will fall on, is my boy, Markel Fultz, who I just wrote about on hashtag basketball.com. Um, Did you really just make a shoulder joke about Markel Fultz? <laughs> what can I say? It's, you know, uh, it's a gift. <laughs> that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, the thing with faults is he's like, to me, he's contributing to winning basketball more or less. Um, but he's also remarkably just not doing that much. He's with all the talk about his shoulder, of course, and his shot and how he was so afraid to shoot and blah, 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 blah. He's shooting 25% on threes this season. 25%. Who's worse than that in the NBA? Off the top of your head, maybe Westbrook? 
Maybe not. I think Trivion Graham is shooting like 21% right now for the Timberwolves. Okay, that's a that's a keeper then. Um, I mean, it's crazy how bad he's shooting. Technically, uh, Michael Carter-Williams is worse on Orlando. Um, but like, that's not, not a good look for Markel. But he has some highlight plays now and then he had six steals the other night. Um, like he's doing things. He's useful. He's an effective NBA player. And that's in itself a big win. I think for Orlando, um, I think maybe his player option is what? 9 million. Does that sound right? I think it's higher actually. Cause he was the first pick. Oh, it might've been 9 million this year. Um, so whatever it is, you know, you're not, you're not, oh yeah, there it is. It's it's twelve point three next year. It's nine point seven five this year. Um, you know that's kind of a middle of the road salary, and he's probably playing like a nine million dollar player this year. And if you believe that he can continue improving, again, he's he's only played sixty seven games in the NBA. Um, if you think he's still making progress and you like some chemistry that he's developing with someone besides Jonathan Isaac, because that's on the shelf for a couple months, you know, I think, I think he's got a future and like as a human being, that makes me happy. Maybe I'm crazy. That's pretty much what I was going to say. I couldn't agree more. It's just wonderful as a human being to look at the Markel Fold story. And at this point, I feel pretty confident that even if he doesn't ever regain his shot or become the prospect he was expected to be coming out of Washington, I think at this point, he's at least proven enough that he's going to be in the NBA for a while. Right. And honestly, I wasn't too sure about that last year. So even even if he doesn't ever live up to his expectations, it's just nice to see that at least he's going to be able to make a career for himself as a borderline starting slash backup point guard. Right. And, you know, for what it's worth, uh, it's funny that they – they put him as the starter over uh, DJ Augustine because DJ Augustine is just this like ageless wonder and the perfect backup point guard in the NBA. Um, and he's, his stats are pretty similar to Fultz. Uh, Fultz is 11 points. Augustine's 10.6 Fultz, four and a half assists. Augustine just under five, you know, they're both two and a half to three rebounds. Um, Fultz gets a few more steals, but like, uh, it's just sort of a funny thing that like, ah, we're going to transition away from Augustine as the starter. And they're both playing almost exactly 26 minutes a game. Their shooting percentages are not that far off. Augustine's has been a little worse overall, better from three, but you're getting these really similar players, um, which kind of begs the question, like who should be starting? But, um, but either way, like you said, Fultz is, uh, he's officially looking like an NBA player, and that's that's good news. Speaking of a team that we did not expect to look like they had NBA players on it at all, the current number nine seed, the Charlotte Hornets, and I posed this in our outline, but it seems almost like there really isn't another candidate, but are the Hornets the surprise team of the NBA season so far? Yes, with an asterisk. Um I'm going to say they are, I listed uh, the Celtics as a possibility because they're just better than we thought they would be. Um, But that's not 
quite the same as a surprise. Like we thought they were going to be good. We thought Charlotte was going to be one of the worst teams in the league, if not the worst team in the league. And now they're nine seed in the East, which is okay. Um, I think the other surprise is I did not think Atlanta would be this bad. Um, the Collins suspension didn't help, but uh, I think their over-under was like 33 wins or something, and it looks like they would need about 140 games to get there. Um, so Atlanta's probably the the negative biggest surprise, um, but the Hornets, they just have to be, right? They They look like a real NBA team. It's pretty weird. So... I was really down on the Hawks coming into the season, and I don't want anyone to look up any of the rest of the predictions I've made in my life, but I'm very happy that I was right about that one. I think I'm actually more surprised by Miami being as good as they've been than I am by the Celtics being as good as they've been. I thought that Miami had a pretty hard ceiling of like sixth seed in the conference, and they're currently third, so clearly I was wrong about that one. But yeah, I mean, the thing about the Hornets is that they might be doing a lot worse than they were right now had P.J. Washington not turned out to be a really excellent shooter and one of the best rookies in his class. But really the shocking part is that Devontae Graham is a completely different player than he was his rookie year where he barely played at all and was abysmal in the minutes that he did play. So he's certainly fallen off a little bit in the last few weeks, but if he keeps this up, do you think that he might have an outside chance at one of the all-star spots in the East? Look, everyone's got an outside chance at an all-star spot in the East. I don't think Henry Ellenson does. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) Be right back. I got to vote for him about 10 times now. (laughs) Great, great. Um, No, I, I think it'll... It'll be close. I think so much of the Eastern Conference All-Star picture lands on Simmons and Butler as front court or back court. Um, because if they're both back court, um, then things open up a bit, right? For for your small forwards, for like Tatum and, and guys like that. If they're both front court guys, then you know you dig a little deeper and you get your Devontae Grahams or uh, I don't know, your Spencer Dinwiddie's or maybe Zach Levine, who I think we'll talk about in a little bit. So I think, you know, what was it two weeks ago? Devontae Graham was a sure thing all-star in the East. Um, I'm looking at it here, and I believe over his last, what is this, 10 games, he's shooting 27% overall and 31% from three. Um, So probably just a cold spell. But uh, it's uh, it's a very cold spell. Um, he's shooting 11 threes a game over those last 10, which is wild. Um, but he's getting eight assists, four rebounds, uh, more than one steal. Like, he's doing things. Um, he's not just shooting poorly lately. He's He is affecting the game all around. Um, so I think he's going to be right on the edge. Um, I'm willing to go on the limb and say, sure, he's going to write the ship over the next couple of weeks. And I think he will make the all-star team. This is partially because the Hornets have already played 37 games, but at the moment, Devonte Graham is second in the NBA in three point field goal makes and third in the NBA in total assists. Devonte Graham. That's, 
that's not bad. I think we all had that. Was that in your preseason predictions? I, I think I had it in mine. I'm 90% sure. <laughs> oh, no, I had him I had him winning the assist crown, so I, I clearly was off on that one. Well, boy, you just don't know basketball, do you? Apparently not. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Yeah, it is hilarious to me that Terry Rozier has actually been far better than I thought he would be, and still is not even the best point guard on his own team. Right. I um, I think one of my preseason predictions was that Terry Rozier um, would shoot like 23 times a game. And I'm not even close. I'm surprised to say it. And he's been pretty good. I mean, he's 39% from three. Um, he lit up the Cavs in both games against them recently. Uh, but that makes sense because he's from Cleveland. so. Those are sort of personal games where he's going to take a bunch of shots and play really well. But um, when he's going, he is he is tough, man. Like I, better than what I was expecting when he signed that contract. So the fact that the Hornets are sort of on the bubble at nine, but are way ahead of expectations, makes it a bit difficult to sort of figure out what direction they should aim to go in at the trade deadline, whether they should be looking to sell off pieces for future parts or who knows, maybe if the magic really do fall off without Jonathan Isaac around, the Hornets might decide, you know what, we could sneak into the eighth seed. And if there's any owner in the league who's going to be willing to do a win now trade to try and get a couple of playoff gate revenues in there, it's going to be Michael Jordan. And I think the most tradable player that they have in terms of someone who isn't going to be a future piece for them, but someone who's still an effective veteran role player. Marvin Williams, I think, is someone they could be looking to move. He's shooting 40% from three on a healthy number of attempts in his 20 minutes per game. He's fallen off dramatically on the defensive end, but he's not a complete turnstile there. And I think there are a whole bunch of teams that could use him as a stretch four heading into the playoffs. So really the questions are, a, what team would need someone like him? I think a lot of teams could use him. The question is really just who's willing to give up something to get him and what are the Hornets willing to take? Because I doubt they're getting a first round pick from him, right. but if they could get like a maybe an early second round pick, it might be worth it to try and move on from him. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I don't think he's enough of a factor uh, in their rotation right now that they would keep him. Uh, well, I should say with the asterisk of if they get a halfway decent offer. I think you're right. A, a first, even from you know a team that's going to have the 28th or 29th pick, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, however, there's a tricky thing with a guy like Marvin Williams, who I think is I think his contract is uh, according to Basketball Reference right at 15 million this year. Is that's a tricky number um, for for contracts like there's not that many guys between about 13 and 20 million dollars um there's a lot of guys who got these sort of sweetheart deals that are eight or ten million and then there's a lot of guys who got overpaid and are at 20 to 28 million um so the market for what you can get in return might just be a pick and you know a as far as players like i I just don't see much coming in, especially from, you know, a contending team that are so top heavy with, I mean, everyone talks about the Lakers making trades to get something. Um, 
but like with $65 million locked up between their top two players, you have a lot of tiny contracts and a couple of huge contracts. So are they going to package three guys together to get Marvin Williams? Like that doesn't seem possible. Um, or, you know, the Rockets are willing to trade basically anyone except James Harden at any point, but what contracts can they legitimately offer that would get them Marvin Williams? And even if they could, um, you know, it's with the Rockets is probably two guys who can shoot to get one guy who can shoot. And that's a, that's a lateral to backwards move. So um, I don't think he'll move. I think the move for him would have been like a year ago when there appeared to be more gas left in the tank. Um, And so the fact that they haven't done it yet, I just don't really think it's going to get done. Um, Do you have any trade partners for them that you like? Uh, I mean, the Lakers are certainly the team that would be able to use him best, but I think you're right. It would be difficult to find the kind of contracts that they would need to fill in salary wise. And I think that Contavious Caldwell Pope has to have like 74 books full of blackmail on the Lakers front office at this point. So he's not moving anywhere. And once you look past that, it's really (laughs) difficult to find any sort of contracts that they could move. Another trade possibility that I don't think is likely to happen at all, but it might be worth listening on Miles Bridges if you're the Hornets. I think he's proven himself to be a really solid player who's not particularly spectacular at anything, but he's such a wildly talented athlete that I could see another team getting way too sold on what he could be and feeling like, oh, the Hornets have just ruined his development and maybe overpaying for him. And I think he's the kind of player that could be worth more to another team than he is to the Hornets. I think that Malik Monk has also been in the coach's doghouse for every Hornets coach basically since he's been drafted. And maybe there are still enough people around the league who believe in him that the Hornets could sell high on him, even though selling high isn't exactly right, given that he's shooting 26% from deep this year. Right. High is a relative term there. But um, the flip side of that is that with Malik Monk, you're getting, I think he's 21 right now. So um, I think any team should at least take a flyer on a guy who's, or, you know, consider uh, a 21 year old point guard who has NBA experience. And, um, you know, there's some stuff to work on, of course. Um, Bridges, I think you're right there, but it's really going to depend on, it kind of hinges on Orlando. I think if they, do stumble um i don't think charlotte will make much of a move because if they can you know sort of sidle their way into the eighth spot um i don't think there are any illusions of them being one piece away from beating either boston or milwaukee in the first round so i think you sort of take your lumps get your two games of playoff box office and head into the offseason knowing that uh, Marvin Williams and I think Bismarck Biombo both come off the books this summer. Um, so should be a little bit of a different look next year, uh, for the Hornets. Um, yes, they got, they got a lot of money coming free this summer. Number 10, the Chicago Bulls currently 13 and 22 percentage points behind the 14 and 23 Charlotte Hornets in the ninth seed. Another team that would very, very much like to get the four, excuse me, not for the two games of playoff gate revenue from getting absolutely thumped in the first round and then moving on. 
it is remarkable to me that the Bulls have managed to stay even in the top 10 in the Eastern Conference because before David Fisdale got fired, it seemed like Jim Boylan was the odds-on favorite. And I'm not the body language doctor kind of person, but you see huddles with Boylan and literally the entire team turns away from him, looks toward an assistant coach, talks among themselves. I don't understand how that situation is still standing, honestly. Oh, man. Um, So I, I lived in Chicago for about four years and everyone I knew who liked basketball there just can't get over the Gar Foreman era. Um, and it's just, it's just such a mess. Um, and I mean, I don't even really know what to say about him at this point. Um, as far as the team goes, um, yeah, they're, I can't believe Boylan still has a job. I, but I also kind of can't believe they're not at least a little better than they are. It seems like in a vacuum, they have eight or 10 guys who are at least league average. Um, maybe not eight or 10, but like they have a rotation of players and I know they've dealt with a little bit of injuries. Um, it just seems like there's, they are less than the sum of their parts or something. Gosh, I wonder what non-player that kind of thing might fall on. You know, if only there were someone who was like in charge of them in some way, but uh, I don't know, maybe maybe in a different sport. Um, no, they're, they're just so like, they're kind of disheartening to watch. They're hard to watch. I have not seen a lot of Chicago Bulls this year because when you turn on League Pass and it's like, oh, there's a Bulls game or there's a grizzlies game like i'm taking the grizzlies 10 times out of 10 um but i mean they i'm looking at this they are 30th in the league in field goal percentage that's not a great sign um they're just not really like an interesting team and they sit there with their auto porter contract and having him have uh, appear in nine games so far because of injuries like they're just stuck in an awkward rut and they have a lot of pieces that don't seem to work or work together on that front could we like fuse kobe white and chris dunn somehow because that would be one of the most fun point guards in the league but watching chris dunn on offense is kind of similar to watching kobe white on defense in that you feel like you're walking into the basement in the horror movie and you just want to put your hand over your eyes oh boy yeah Chris Dunn shooting a balmy 23%. He's worse than faults from three. How about that? Uh, And then you've got Kobe White somehow shooting 39% on twos. Um, So that's interesting. But Dunn's shooting over 50% on twos. So, you know, bring them together. You get basic, honestly, you get like a... You get an average point guard. Yeah. Well, I I think above average. I think Chris Dunn is a really underrated defensive player and yeah i buy that i think kobe white could be a lot better than shooting 39 percent from two i think that's fair i don't know i just feel like both of those point guards have such distinct strengths and weaknesses that are diametrically opposite yes. to each other and if they could just get those two guys into one player it would really help them i think the other thing with the bulls though is that we might not be talking about them as 
as disappointing and confusing and hard to understand if Otto Porter had played more than nine games this year. Right. I think he really could tie, he could have tied a lot of this team together and him being out for so long, you know, maybe if he comes back fully healthy by after the all-star break, the bulls could make a push for the eighth seed if they're sort of still in that territory. Yeah. I think that's probably true and relatively likely because again, like, it doesn't take much to get the eighth seed in the East. I mean, look at the teams we're talking about here. It's it's kind of bleak. Um, so, you know, I think they have enough talent to at least hang around and be within a couple of games. And if Porter can make the difference there, then, you know, um, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, he's at least a guy that we know is talented. Um one quick thing about the Bulls is like, and we can probably blame Boylan for this too, because he deserves blame for most things that are going on there. Um, but remember two years ago when Lowry Markinen was like this really exciting rookie who was putting up 15 and seven and shooting six threes a game and making 36% of them. Uh, he has almost the exact same stat line in this, his third year, playing the same amount of minutes, taking the same amount of shots, making slightly fewer of his threes. He went from 15.2 points a game to 15.1. Um, like he's not made any progress at all. And that's kind of a bummer. It feels like you'll see, Oh, Markinen's got like 14 in the first quarter tonight. And then he ends the game with like 19. Um, I don't know who to blame, but I'm going to go with Boylan. I do want to push back on that just a little bit in that he was ice cold in November, 33% from the floor, 31% from deep. And then in December, he nearly shot 50, 40, 90. He only missed in the free throw department. He shot 51, 42, 83 in the month of December. So I think it's possible, honestly, that he just had a really cold start to the season, but you know, we'll see. I mean, he certainly has not grown as much as I would have hoped after what we saw from him his first year in the league. I guess I just uh, re-outed myself as not really paying much attention to the Bulls. <laughs> I mean, I can't really blame you, to be honest. Right. Yeah. But if we're going to talk about fun parts of the Bulls, let's talk about Zach Levine. And he's another one of these guys who's sort of on the bubble for an Eastern Conference guard all-star spot. But given that the game is in Chicago and that Zach Levine's style of basketball was basically made for the All-Star game, I think it would be almost disappointing if he didn't make it. I'm with you. Um, Because really, who super cares about most of the backups in the All-Star game? Like, you want to see wild highlights, and then you want to see it be close in the fourth quarter and have all these guys really try and have, like, Giannis against Kawhi or LeBron with four minutes left in a five point game. Like that's, that's what the all-star game is for. Um, but in between there and, you know, like in the second quarter and late in the third quarter, early in the fourth, I want to see Zach Levine throwing down 360 windmills from the free throw line. Cause he's just a bananas athlete. And it does feel like someone from the bulls should, which is a term I use loosely, uh, should maybe make it. And it sure ain't going to be Chris Dunn or Kobe White. So uh, Levine makes the most sense. Um, plus, you know, it might end up like 
an injury sh- injury replacement and things like that because I'm sure guys will get voted in and then skip it and whatnot. So I, I think whether I don't think he'll get voted in. I don't know that he'll be a first reserve, but I think he'll find his way in there. Let's move on to the rest of the conference. You mentioned earlier that you thought pretty much every team but Atlanta still has a chance. I would add the Knicks to that list because of the last 20 years of the Knicks being the Knicks. Sure, you got evidence to back that up. But the other three teams, I think they're... It's funny because they're not that far behind Chicago or Charlotte. The Pistons are currently 12 and 23, so basically just a game back. And then the Wizards and the Cavs are a game and a half behind them. But the conversation around the Pistons the last couple days has basically been, are they going to sell off Andre Drummond before he becomes a free agent? And I don't think that's going to be a move that's going to be a win now kind of trade which makes me feel pretty confident that the Pistons aren't going to climb back into the playoff picture. As for the Wizards, they're certainly more fun than a lot of the bottom feeder teams we've seen, and especially the bottom feeder teams we've seen in the East. I don't think their odds are all that great. And not to be unkind, but I don't think the Cavaliers have much of a chance either. Oh, no, they do not. Um, Hey, let let me ask you a quick question here. So... Um, the Pelicans have the third most points allowed per game in the NBA at 116.6. The Hawks have the second most points allowed per game at 117.3. How many points per game do you think the Wizards give up? 119. 121.1. Dear Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's incredible. I don't even know what to say. It's absolutely insane to look at that. But somehow, I think uh, they're tied with the Cavs 10 and 24. I think the Wizards have a much better shot than the Cavs. That's, that does not in any way mean they have a good shot. Um, I think they have a better shot because they have a better player leading the team. Um, the Pistons, ah, geez, they're a bummer. It just doesn't seem like anything they do works. Boy, I mean, I guess see what you can get for Drummond, but like, what can you get for Drummond right now? Um, He's a real good defensive player, but I don't think a lot of teams want to build around a dominant and even like a pseudo dominant center. Um, He's not changing shots quite the way Rudy Gobert is. I mean, maybe he's close, but probably not. Um, And he just... Gosh, I don't know what you do with him. Maybe you like they can't keep him and pay him because they know already that him and Blake Griffin as the two like top players isn't really doing anything, or else they wouldn't be sitting at twelve and twenty three right now. So I mean, I guess they gotta get rid of him, right? I think that the problem with Drummond is that I don't think there's anyone that really even could make a package for him that makes sense. I mean, the one team that I've heard that I would at least be willing to listen to would be the Atlanta Hawks in terms of putting together a trade package. Mm -hmm. But if you're the Hawks, you're going to be one of the few teams that has cap space this summer. Why wouldn't you just wait? Like, what is the purpose of giving up an asset for Andre Drummond now when you're almost certainly going to be the lead contender for him as soon as it hits free agency? Right. And it's not like he's putting you over the top to, I don't know, not be three games worse than the Knicks. 
Like, woof. Yeah, fun times in Atlanta. Oof, they are bad. But going back to the Wizards for a second, I feel ridiculous even saying this, but after what we've seen from them this year, I'm a lot more on board with the wait for John Wall to come back and give the John Wall-Bradley Beal thing one more chance. Sure. Because... Honestly, you know, the Wizards have been terrible. Let's not sugarcoat this, but they haven't been as terrible as I thought they would be. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been terrible in the sorts of ways where I don't think that adding another all-star caliber player could really help. I mean, they're not that far off the eighth seed right now. If you throw John Wall back onto this team Mm -hmm. today, fully healthy, I mean... I don't think they're the favorite to be the eighth seed, but I think they've got a really good shot. And unless something drastic happens to any of these bubble teams next season, they could make a push for the eighth seed next year because granted the Nets are going to get back Kevin Durant. And obviously that's dramatic, but they're already in the seventh seed. So that's not even the team that they're aiming for. Right. So one other thing about the Wizards is, um, and again, I I do not think they're going to come climbing back to that eighth seed, but uh, they have lost, uh, they've been four and 14 in their last 18 games. And if you look at their basketball reference page at their injury report, there are seven guys on it right now. Uh, Beal was out last night, Friday. Bertans has been out. He's going to be, maybe he should be reevaluated sometime around now. Um, Thomas Bryant has been out. Hachimura has been out. CJ Miles, uh, had surgery on his wrist. He's out for a while. Mo Wagner uh, is expected to be out till late January. And then John Wall, like those guys aren't super duper stars, except for Beal. Um, but that was like a one game thing. But like when Bertans has missed two weeks and like that changes things a lot for them. Cause that guy is absolutely insane. So how many games have they played? Uh, we're looking at 34 games. And if you look at their roster, uh, Ish Smith is the only player who has appeared in 34 games. Beal has missed three. Troy Brown has missed three. And then everybody else is below that. So they are, they're not good, um, but they're not that bad. And they are just, they're just getting people injured everywhere. It looks like they got two, three, four. They got about 12 guys who've started games this season. Um, So, I mean, who had Admiral Schofield as starting two games in the first two months of the season for the Wizards? His mom? I don't even know if she did. Um, they are just so banged up. Um, they're counting on quality minutes from Jan Mahinmi, the $75 million man or whatever he is. They're just... So I this was a really roundabout way of saying, I think I'm with you. And I think if you threw a healthy John Wall onto this team, I don't. I think they'd be above the eighth seed. I think they'd be pretty. Uh, at the very least, they'd be unbelievably entertaining, um, and I think they'd be pretty solid. I think they'd probably be a little better than Brooklyn at this point, assuming health for the Wizards and to the current level of health for the for the Nets. That's fair enough. I mean. <laughs> Obviously, the Warriors take the cake as least healthy team this season Mm -hmm. by orders of magnitude, but the Nets and the Wizards are definitely in the top five, I would say. Yeah, it's been a rough go for for the Wizards' health. All right, let's wrap up by talking about the new play-in tournament that the NBA has proposed 
They're apparently going to discuss this in the Board of Governors meeting this April about whether or not to add in a midseason tournament and then also a play-in tournament for the 7 through 10 seeds, which fits pretty perfectly with the conceit of this bubble podcast talking about the 7 through 10 teams. So I have a pretty different opinion on this than you do. I am pretty on the fence, but overall leaning slightly in favor. And you are very strongly against. So I would love to hear your sort of perspective on why you think this is a really terrible idea. This is a terrible idea because if the Bulls lose twice and the Pistons win twice, the Pistons would be the 10th seed and they are awful and they would be in the playoffs. The Cavs, who are awful, could win a, go on a four-game win streak and then win one game against a rough team and they're suddenly in the playoffs to lose by 45 a night against Milwaukee. Like nobody really likes the one versus eight seed already. And we're looking at a possibility of having an even worse eighth seed. Like it could happen that Orlando and Brooklyn both play pretty well the rest of the season. Let's say they're 42 and 40 or 40. Let's, let's call them 41 and 41. And that could leave a team like Chicago who could be 33 and 49, just like objectively bad, just bad. And if they beat Brooklyn once, because Kyrie is, I don't know, debating the merits of how the universe can exist, uh, they're suddenly in the playoffs. Like that sounds awful. I mean, who, who wants a worse team taking on the number one seed? Like, the NBA's playoff ratings problems come when the one versus eight series is just buried on NBA TV because nobody cares about watching Milwaukee beat Orlando 125 to 90 every night. And you're really running the risk of getting even worse teams in there. Um, that's my big beef with it. I understand there are there are some merits to it. Um, you would theoretically have those fringe teams trying a little harder um, and not being so terrible, uh, because a team like the Cavs, who is 10 and 24, is three games out from, or two and a half games out from the 10 seed. So, you know, they have some motivation to stay healthier and, well, not healthier, but, you know, to, to try and to, you know, not nurse an injury because, hey, we could end up in the playoffs here. Um, but like, that's not the playoffs. You know, it's just, it's just not. And it would make those one or two games really exciting for who gets the, who gets the eight spot. But woof, imagine Charlotte or Phoenix and how bad Phoenix has been and how bad Minnesota has been for most of the season and how bad Detroit has been for like eight years and them being in the playoffs, like, those teams don't deserve to be in the playoffs. It's gross. That's the end of my rant. So I have a couple of counter arguments. I very much understand where you're coming from. And I think part of this is also biased by the fact that I'm a fan of the perennial 10th seed Sacramento Kings. <laughs> That's a tough break. The first thing that comes to mind for me with this is something that you sort of brought up tangentially, which is 
the one to eight seed matchups are already pretty terrible. So honestly, I think that the seventh, eighth seed is a whole lot more exciting when there's a play in tournament for who gets the right to get absolutely beat down by the number one seed, because I can remember pretty clearly the one, eight upsets, the 94 Denver nuggets, the 2007 warriors, you know, we remember those teams because absolutely no one expected them to do anything at all. And I don't think that changes all that much. If you're talking about putting the 10th seed in versus the seventh or eighth seed And the real best counterexample I have is in the 2015-2016 season, the Memphis Grizzlies were a hospital ward by the end of the season. They ended up in the seventh seed and just got absolutely demolished by the Spurs in a sweep. And I think not only does the play-in tournament give hope to fans of the 10th seed teams, like, say, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings for the last few years of their history. I've heard of them. But I think it also allows for the opportunity for teams that – have come on really hot at the end of the season. And, you know, this is also, say, the, yeah, the 2016-17 Miami Heat, where they started 11-30 and 30 and ended 30-11 and 11 and missed the playoffs by, like, a tiebreaker. True. I think it would have been a lot more fun to see them in the playoffs than it was to see the Bulls in the playoffs get housed by the Celtics. Yeah, that that is a fair point. I think, um, I mean, I, that is true, and it would make for two or four, I guess, four more exciting games in early April when most everything sucks. But uh, to me, this is just, this is solving the wrong problem. That I completely agree with. Right, because like top 16 teams, right? That's that's the real solution here. Um, and it, it doesn't really hold right now because the seven, eight seeds, or I guess top seven in the West are all pretty good. Um, and then it falls off when you get to eight, nine, 10, but like generally speaking, if you had a team that's 44 and 38, instead of them being the ninth seed in the West, put them in the playoffs. We want good teams in the playoffs. That's, that's what would make these things more watchable. But I know that is probably not how the owners are going to vote because they get those two more box office revenues or whatever it would be. So uh, I'm just going to have to accept this, but I don't like it. I will say this. I think part of my optimism about this tournament and the conversation about reseeding the top four teams once they reach the conference finals, I think these are baby steps in the right direction. Mm. And I think that even the midseason tournament, which I'm a lot less in favor of than I am of the play-in tournament, just because I think they're are really weird incentive structures to try and get anyone to care about that midseason tournament. Yes. But I think that, you know, these discussions are steps in the right direction of reducing the number of games in the season and getting the best 16 teams in the playoffs. And, you know, this is obviously an intermediate step to that sort of end goal, but ultimately I don't think the owners were ever going to agree to just go directly from 82 games and, one through eight in each conference straight to say 58 games and one through 16 playoff seating. So who knows, you know, maybe this doesn't work out all that well. And after a couple of years, they scrap it and we go back to where we were. But I think that progress is almost always a good sign. And the fact that they're at least trying something like this, I think bodes well for potential future reforms that maybe hew a little bit closer to what you and I would like to see ultimately out of the NBA. Sure, I think if we can tie in a um, a uh, worldview 
point on the hashtag basketball uh, podcast here. I, I think it's very clearly that, because uh, that's what we try to do here, I'm sure, um, is that open-mindedness in general is a good thing. Um, and being open to these changes and open to discussing these changes and open to like not being stuck in, well, this is how it's been, so this is how it is. I think you're absolutely right that having any discussion at this point is a good thing um, and is probably moving us toward a better uh, a better playoff product at some point in the future, even if it's not quite yet. So for the greater good, maybe I'll come around a little, but come on, can you imagine Detroit versus Milwaukee in round one? Barf. Yeah, we saw that last year. Yeah, come on. All right. On that incredibly happy and uplifting note, (laughs) anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? Uh, No, I'm good. All right. Well, he is Kevin Nye. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin P. Nye, and you can find his work on the hashtag basketball website. As we mentioned, he just recently came out with an article about Markel Fultz, which you should definitely check out. And of course, he is one of my ongoing partners for the NBA Power Rankings, so you can check out his work there as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. It really helps on our end. And if you have any sort of feedback on the podcast, good bad, indifferent, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N or via email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.